Chapter 3 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by Georges Sand. Chapter 3. Born in sunny Italy, brought up by chance, like a seabird sporting on its shores, poor, an orphan, a castaway, and nevertheless happy in the present and confiding in the future, foundling as he doubtless was, Anzaletto, the handsome youth of nineteen who spent his days with little Consuelo, in perfect freedom, on the footways of Venice, was not as might be supposed in his first love. Too early initiated, he would, perhaps, have been completely corrupted and worn out, had he dwelt in our somber climate, or had nature endowed him with a feebler organization. But early developed and destined to a long and powerful career, his heart was pure and his senses were restrained by his will. He had met the little Spaniard by chance, singing hymns before the Madonnette, and for the pleasure of exercising his voice he had joined her for hours together beneath the stars. Then they met upon the sands of the Lido to gather shellfish, which he ate, and which she converted into chaplets and other ornaments. And then again they had met in the churches, where she prayed with all her heart, and where he gazed with all his eyes at the fine ladies. In all these interviews, Consuelo had appeared to him so good, so sweet, so obliging, and so gay, that she had become his inseparable friend and companion. He knew not very well how or why. Anzoletto had known the joys of love. He felt friendship for Consuelo, and as he belonged to a country and a people where passion reigns over every other feeling, he knew no other name for this attachment than that of love. Consuelo admitted this mode of speaking after she had addressed Anzoletto as follows. If you are my lover, it is then with the intention of marrying me? To which he replied, Certainly, if you wish it, we shall marry each other. From that moment it was a settled affair. Possibly Anzoletto was amusing himself, but to Consuelo it was a matter of firm conviction. Even already his young heart experienced those contradictory and complicated emotions which agitate and discompose the existence of those who love too early. Given up to violent impulses, greedy of pleasure, loving only what promoted his happiness, hating and avoiding everything which opposed his gratifications, at heart an artist, that is to say, feeling and reveling in life with frightful intensity, he soon found that his transient attachments imposed on him the sufferings and dangers of a passion which he did not really feel, and he experienced the want of sweet companionship and of a chaste and tranquil outlet to his feelings. Then, without understanding the charm which drew him to Consuelo, having little experience of the beautiful, hardly knowing whether she was handsome or ugly, joining for her sake in amusements beneath his age, he led with her in public, on the marble floors and on the waters of Venice, a life as happy, as pure, as retired, and almost as poetic as that of Paul and Virginia in the recesses of the forest. Although they enjoyed unrestrained liberty, no watchful tender parents to form them to virtue, no devoted attendant to seek them and bring them back to the bosom of their homes, not even a dog to warn them of danger, they never experienced harm. They skimmed over the waters of the lagoons in all times and seasons in their open boat, without oars or pilot. They wandered over the marshes without guide, without watch, and heedless of the rising waters. They sang before the vine-covered chapels at the corners of the streets, without thinking of the hour, and sometimes with no other couch than the white tiles 
still warm with the summer rays. They paused before the theater of Puncinello and followed with riveted attention the fantastic drama of the beautiful Corisanda, queen of the puppet show, without thinking of their breakfast or the little probability there was of supper. They enjoyed the excesses of the carnival, he with his coat turned inside out, she with a bunch of old ribbons placed coquettishly over her ear. They dined sumptuously, sometimes on the balustrades of a bridge or on the steps of a palace, on shellfish, fennel stalks, and pieces of citron. In short, they led a free and joyous life, without incurring more risk or feeling more emotion than might have been experienced by two young people of the same age and sex. Days, years passed away, and Zaletto formed other connections, while Consuelo never imagined that he could love anyone but her. She became a young woman without feeling it necessary to exercise any further reserve with her betrothed. While he saw her undergo this transformation without feeling any impatience or desiring to change this intimacy, free as it was at once from scruple, mystery, or remorse. It was already four years since Professor Porpora and Zustiniani had mutually introduced their little musicians, and during this period the Count had never once thought of the young chorister. The Professor had likewise forgotten the handsome Anzaletto, inasmuch as he had found him endowed with none of the qualities desirable in a pupil, to wit, a serious, patient disposition, absolute submission to his teacher, and complete absence of all musical studies before the period of his instruction. "'Do not talk to me,' said he, "'about a pupil whose mind is anything else than a tabula rosa, or virgin wax, on which I am to make the first impression. I cannot afford to give up a year to unteach what has been learned before. If you want me to write, give me a clear surface, and that too of a good quality. If it be too hard, I can make no impression on it. If too soft, I shall destroy it at the first stroke. In short, although he acknowledged the extraordinary talents of the young Anzaletto, he told the Count with some temper and ironical humility at the end of his first lesson that his method was not adapted to a pupil so far advanced, and that a master could only embarrass and retard the natural progress and invincible development of so superior an organization. The Count sent his protégé to Professor Melefiore, who with roulades and cadences, modulations and trills, so developed his brilliant qualities that at twenty-three he was considered capable, in the opinion of all those who heard him in the saloons of the court, of coming out at San Samuel in the first parts. One evening, the dilettanti, nobility and artists of repute, then in Venice, were requested to be present at a final and decisive trial. For the first time in his life, Anzaletto doffed his plebeian attire, put on a black coat, a satin vest, and with curled and powdered hair and buckles in his shoes, glided over with a composed air to the harpsichord, where amid the glare of a hundred wax lights and under the gaze of two or three hundred persons, he boldly distended his chest and made the utmost display of powers that were to introduce him into a career where not one judge alone, but a whole public, held the palm in one hand and the downfall in the other. We need not ask whether Enzaletto was secretly agitated. Nevertheless, he scarcely allowed his emotion to be apparent, and hardly had his piercing eyes divined, by a stealthy glance, the secret approbation which women rarely refuse to grant to so handsome a youth. Hardly had the amateurs, surprised at the compass of his voice and his facility of expression, uttered a few faint murmurs of applause, when joy and hope flooded his whole being. 
For the first time, Anzaletto, hitherto ill-instructed and undervalued, felt that he was no common man, and transported by the necessity and the consciousness of success, he sang with an originality, an energy, and skill that were altogether remarkable. His taste, to be sure, was not always pure, nor his execution faultless, but he was always able to extricate himself by his boldness, his intelligence, and enthusiasm. He failed in effects which the composer had intended, but he realized others which no one ever thought of, neither the author who composed, the professor who interpreted, nor the virtuoso who rehearsed them. His originality took the world by storm. For one innovation his awkwardness was pardoned, and for an original sentiment they excused ten rebellions against method. So true it is that in point of art the least spark of genius, the smallest flight in the direction of new conquests, exercises a greater fascination than all the resources and lights of science within known limits. Nobody, perhaps, was able to explain these matters, and nobody escaped the common enthusiasm. Carilla began by a grand aria, well sung and loudly applauded. Yet the success of the young debutante was so much greater than her own that she could not help feeling an emotion of anger. But when Anzaletto, loaded with caresses and praises, returned to the harpsichord where she was seated, he said, with a mixture of humility and boldness, And you, queen of song and queen of beauty, have you not one encouraging look for the poor unfortunate who fears and yet adores you? The prima donna, surprised at so much assurance, looked more closely at the handsome countenance which till then she had hardly deigned to notice. For what vain and triumphant woman cares to cast a glance on the child of obscurity and poverty? She looked and was struck with his beauty. The fire of his glances penetrated her soul, and vanquished, fascinated in her turn, she directed toward him a long and earnest gaze, which served to seal his celebrity. In this memorable meeting, Anzaletto had led the public, and disarmed his most redoubtable adversary. For the beautiful songstress was not only queen of the stage, but at the head of the management and of the cabinet of Count Zustaniani. End of chapter 3